This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The Word of God found in the book of Ezra, chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what the king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted that amount to Sesbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Shezbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. This is God's Word. What is the story of the Old Testament like? Why don't you imagine for a minute God building a theater The angels and the creatures of heaven are the audience, ready to watch this story unfold. The stage is the earth. And on this stage, God is going to demonstrate his glory, his superlativeness, his unmatched perfection. This means that you and I are living in the grand production of the cosmic artist, whose masterpiece is staged in all creation unfolding across world history. Now in one little section of the stage, he planted a garden. He didn't bother with actors. He put real life characters on the stage in this garden. This is God's reality show. He meant for these real life characters to actually fill the stage with other characters who walk with him in faith and obedience. But instead, they rebelled against him. And so they lost the privilege of living in the garden. God banished them from the realm of life. 
Now, as the cosmic drama continued, God chose a weak little nation, Israel, who were enslaved to a bigger, stronger nation, and he liberated them from slavery. He brought them into what amounted to another little garden on the stage, a land that he had promised to them. And just like the first garden, God meant for this little nation to fill the stage with his glory. But God's people failed again and miserably. And just as God had done with Adam and Eve, he banished Israel from that little part of the stage that he had given them. And when he banished them to get at the significance of what was happening, their little replica of the whole theater was torn down and they were taken into captivity in Babylon. Now as the plot rolled on toward that climactic moment when God finally threw them out, Israel's prophets came on the scene and they started to promise that just as God had freed Israel from slavery in Egypt before, so he would save them again after he drove them out of the land. The prophets were promising a new exodus. The prophets promised that just as God had cleared the bad guys off the little part of the stage he gave to Israel, he would give them that part of the stage again. They prophesied a new conquest of the land. They promised that just as God had raised up David to shepherd his people, he would bring another righteous king from Judah. They promised that just as God had filled the tabernacle and the temple with his glory, he would put his spirit in them. They prophesied a new and greater experience of the Spirit. They promised that God would remove their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. They they prophesied new hearts. And, And as the prophets described all this newness, they also described the theater's destruction. And after God tore down the theater, they prophesied that he would build a new one, a better one. They prophesied a new heaven and a new earth and a new and better Eden. New exodus, new return from exile, new covenant, new conquest, new David, new experience of the spirit, new hearts in a new Eden. God promised all this and more to his people. And then he kept his word and he judged their sin. He threw them out. They were taken from that part of the stage identified with the good guys to the part of the stage where the bad guys had their stronghold Babylon. And so we pick up the story in Ezra. God's people had been in exile in Babylon for several decades, but it's no longer Babylon who possesses them, it's Persia. In 539 BC, the empire of Babylon fell to Persia into the hands of Persia's emperor, Cyrus the Great. One superpower replaces another. Nations rise and nations fall. Now here's what we're gonna see. In spite of the tumultuousness, in spite of the chaos, in spite of all the defeats, all the banishment, all the destruction, God still prospers his people. He still builds his church. And as we'll see, he does this by doing three things. Bending world history, drawing exiles close, and plundering the enemy. First, God builds his church by bending world history. Ezra chapter one, verse one, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. And then Cyrus issues this decree that God's people may go free and return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. This is a remarkable event. 
But in order to see how remarkable it is, we need to know something about Cyrus. You see, Cyrus did not worship the God of the Bible. You know who Cyrus's God was? Marduk. He's of a completely different religion. Now, he's tolerant of others, primarily for political reasons. He's got an entire empire to rule. He needs the sympathies of the people who live in his realm. So from his perspective, this is a political move designed to further establish his empire and his power and authority over it. Now, what's interesting about this is the way verse 1 talks about it. The way the edict came to fruition. If we were watching the news that night, the only thing that we would see is the Persian media talking about the legislation that Cyrus signed into law. That's all we would see. But God's interpretation of the same event possesses a different facet to it. Cyrus's edict, Cyrus's legislation was enacted in order to fulfill God's word. Nearly 200 years before, 200 years before, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. 200 years before the event, this is what God said. This is done in fulfillment of God's word. There is no cable news network that's gonna mention that. World history, listen folks, world history revolves around the fulfillment of God's word. God bends flexes and shapes world events in order to fulfill his plans and purposes. World events do not bend, they do not flex, they do not shape God's plans and purposes. God has a long history of doing this in the scriptures. He's got a long history of messing with pagan national leaders. For example, in the book of Exodus, your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. God is bending the heart of Pharaoh in order to make life a little bit more miserable for God's people. Or how about this one from Deuteronomy 2? But Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. Well, why would he do something like that? For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he has now done. Sihon refused to let God's people pass through the Jordan River because, because God made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate. Look, the examples in Scripture of God bending world history, of messing with pagan national leaders to fulfill his plans and purposes, the examples of that are replete. In narrative form, these stories are preaching Proverbs 21.1, which says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he wishes. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord turns that wherever he wants to. You see the theology of the text? You see how the kings, the dictators, the head knockers of the earth 
are God's servant boys. It's football season. <clears throat> For those of you who don't know, the reason they're chuckling is because I'm a Vikings fan. Refocus. Even those of you who watch very little uh, football will likely be exposed to something called instant replay. You know, referee, referees call on the field as challenge and check. Now, how many times are we going to hear, well, from that angle, it doesn't look like he made the catch, but from this angle over here, it looks like he did. Or from that angle, it doesn't look like the ball pro, uh, crossed the, the plane of the goal line, but from this angle, it certainly looks like it does. How many times are we going to hear that? Or if you don't like sports... Picture it this way. Look up at the moon tonight if you're able to see it and think for a moment about how much of the moon you're seeing and not seeing. There's much to going, that's what's going on with the moon at any given moment that we don't see because our angle and our view is limited. Listen, there is an inborn narcissism within each of us that assumes our view of things is the totality of reality. We assume that what there is to see, all there is to see, we see. We, what we know is all there is to know. So we watch current events unfold. We watch national leaders do that and this. We watch nations move in this direction and that direction. And we assume everything there is to see, everything there is to know, we see and we know. The text is offering you insight behind the curtain it's showing us our view is limited. We don't have the whole picture. Only God sees all these things three-dimensionally from all angles. And not only does he see all things three-dimensionally from all angles, he's actually the one directing the movements. Current events worldwide ought never to possess the power to get our underwear in a bunch. Because when it comes down to it, do you believe Proverbs 21, verse 1? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. This world is God's stage. Yes, the bad guys have their strongholds, but they remain God's characters in God's story on God's stage, and God will have his way. Second, God builds his church by drawing exiles close. So God stirs the heart of Cyrus to issue the edict. But God's stirring of the heart doesn't end there. He stirs the hearts, the spirits of the people of Israel. Now, why would he have to do that? You would think that these folks would be giddy with anticipation to return. Why, why does God have to stir their hearts in order for them to go back? Well, remember, it's been 70 years since Jerusalem fell to Babylon. We're talking about multiple generations who were born in Babylon. For many, if not most, Babylon is their natural homeland. It would be like asking second or third generation immigrants to the United States from Japan or Germany to return home. That makes no sense. Japan and Germany aren't their home. Neither was Jerusalem to a great number within Israel's ranks. This is precisely why God had to stir the hearts of the people within the Israelite community. They had no perceived need to return, none. Now, what's the message to us here? 
You know, we're not looking to move from some geographic region to another. Well, remember the significance of where Jerusalem was located. It's in the promised land. What was the promised land to become? The new Eden, the dwelling place of God. But today, the dwelling place of God is not a geographic region. It's what? Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. The church is described as the body of Christ. Jesus is described as the head of the church. You've got a head, you've got a body, and they're linked together. This is the dwelling place of God. The global body of believers, not a building, a global body of believers is the new promised land. It's the new Eden. It's the dwelling place of God. So if people today are going to, quote unquote, return to Jerusalem, come into the dwelling place of God, become part of the church, start following Jesus, what must happen? God must stir their hearts. Just like he did Israel in 6th century B.C., For people who are far from the dwelling place of God, for people who are not Christians, for those people to enter the dwelling place of God, to have a desire to become Christ followers, that can be as foreign as a third generation immigrant returning to their homeland overseas. Non-Christians have no perceived need to do so. In fact, that's our story, that's our past. For every one of us, our natural homeland is Babylon. We're not born with a perceived need to return to the dwelling place of God, to enter Jerusalem. God must stir our hearts. He must stir their hearts. This is what led Jesus to say in John chapter six, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and then I will raise them up on the last day. God stirs hearts. Maybe some imagery will help with this. You know, the skin is a fascinating organ to me. Conventional wisdom says there's holes in the skin. Where else does that sweat come from? But the skin doesn't actually have holes in it. Think about how sick we would get if it did have holes in it. As a boy, I I lived in northern Minnesota and I played in a lot of lakes and ponds and other miscellaneous bodies of water that were questionable. I'm sure crawling with all sorts of microbes that if my skin did have holes in it, I would get very sick. But the skin's a barrier, it keeps things out. You know, for decades, medical professionals worked hard to figure out ways to administer various medicines that could be absorbed through the skin. Now we've been able to get there, but not without difficulty. I even read one account, and I don't know if this is still true or not, where scientists developed patches the size of a band-aid with tiny little micro needles that pierced the skin just enough to get the medicine in but not so deep that our nerves feel it. You know, spiritually we're the same. Our hearts have barriers. Just as the skin must be treated to transmit medication to the body, so our hearts require the special work of God's grace before we can receive the life and healing that he wants to bring. God stirs hearts. This is what he does. It makes sense then why Jesus is able to say no one and nothing can stand against the church. The church will advance. And one application of this is seen in what we've been doing with all the names written on the concrete slab at the foot of the stage. Now when we pray for these people, what are we praying for? For God to stir their hearts to penetrate the barriers, to draw them to Jesus. God had to stir the hearts of 
the people in Babylon to return to Jerusalem. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. This is what we've been praying for. So I want to do that now. I want to pray for some more names. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. Lord, we don't ever want to treat your word as if it contains concepts meant to remain in the brain as purely information. Your word is meant to create action. And so we respond to this word in front of us today. And we lift up before you Mario and Rick, Marlene, Brianna, TJ, Cindy, Matt, Emily, Jason, Lowell, and Stephen. Our prayer is simple, that you would stir their hearts, that you would draw them to your son, and that they would find eternal life. The next time they hear the gospel message, give them ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask this to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Third, God builds his church by plundering the enemy. It's amazing to me that an inventory with silver bowls and gold dishes would be contained within the inerrant word of God. How is that so? It seems rather pedantic, doesn't it? Not at all. Every instance of tabernacle temple building in the Old Testament finds that edifice constructed with victory plunder. Moses built the tabernacle with Egyptian gold. Solomon built the temple with materials David had plundered in his conquests. Zerubbabel built the temple here in Ezra with gold taken from nations once conquered by Babylon. Every instance of tabernacle temple building in the Old Testament finds that that edifice was constructed with victory plunder. God is in the repurposing business. God repurposes everything about us. He repurposes our use of money. A few weeks ago, I told you the story of Jerry Caven. Jerry, a very successful entrepreneur, he and his wife were on a mission to find and purchase their dream lakeside home when God repurposed their resources and directed all of those towards the mission field. God's in the repurposing business. I have a friend named Dave who intentionally reduced the number of clients he was serving. He was working 60 to 70 hours a week intentionally reduced the number of clients he was serving because God had gotten a hold of his heart and he said, I want to give more of my time to the church. And he started volunteering some 15, sometimes 20 hours a week at his church. God's in the repurposing business. All these articles listed, the gold bowls, the silver dishes, they once sat in a pagan temple to honor a God who didn't really exist. But because of God's movements in Ezra 1, those are repurposed to assist in the rebuilding of the dwelling place of God, the one true God. So here's my question to you. What area of your life does God want to repurpose? What does he want to repurpose for the sake of building the church, the dwelling place of God? Your use of money? Your use of time? Your use of words, your use of social media, your use of the intellect God's given you, your career, what area of your life 
does God want to repurpose for the sake of building the church? Now, the entire book of Ezra is about rebuilding the temple. It's the dwelling place of God. Every instance of tabernacle temple building in the Old Testament finds the edifice constructed with victory plunder. So, if the church is the dwelling place of God, I want you to notice something. If the global body of believers in every generation is the dwelling place of God, notice something. God plunders the enemy to build the church. In this cosmic war, God wages his battle, wins decisively, and we are his plunder. You'll never watch a pirate movie the same way. See, it's not just the stuff in our lives that God repurposes. You've been repurposed. You've been repurposed. Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he has brought us into the kingdom of the sunny loves. You've been repurposed, Christian. We are God's victory plunder. In Southington Township, Ohio, you'll find a 25,000 square foot mansion that once was the home of heavyweight boxing champion Mike Tyson. Between 1989 and 1999, when Tyson resided there, this mansion played host to some wild and epic parties, as you and I can probably only imagine. Tyson went through some financial difficulties and as a result wasn't able to keep his house. This 25,000 square foot mansion sat vacant for 10 years until it was donated to a church. People in this church went about fixing it up and cleaning it up. And after 10 years of dormancy, you can imagine there was a lot of work to be done. In fact, the pastor was interviewed by a newspaper. He said, the grass was so tall, we could cut it and sell it for hay. But listen, once they completed their work, once they completed the work, the mansion played host to a new story. The indoor pool area had become their worship center. The four-car garage was now space for children's and youth ministry. And the second floor housed the offices and conference rooms. This is a picture of how God plunders the enemy to build the church. So many of you have stories of God repurposing your life. My question to you is simple, very simple. Have you turned that back to God in praise? Thank you for repurposing my life. Seeing God doesn't just repurpose our use of money. He doesn't just repurpose our use of time and talent. He repurposes us. Is he stirring your heart to repurpose you? I don't want to be that mansion that played host to those wild and epic parties. I want to be the mansion that was transformed into a house of worship. Is God doing that in you? Jesus said no one and nothing will be able to prevail against the church. He builds the church, he firmly plants it, he establishes it, and he does so by bending world history drawing exiles close and plundering the enemy. Let's pray. God, you are unstoppable. 
And we are so prone to forget that. Just like the disciples in the boat, we either don't know who you really are, we just flat out forget your authority over every square inch of human existence. Thank you for your patience with us. Remind us again how you bend world history. World leaders are simply your servant boys. And nothing will ever thwart your plans and purposes. For those of us in this room who belong to you, thank you for stirring our hearts and drawing us close. We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of your son. We worship you for that now. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.